It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 one three eight one four five six seven or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com we hope you'll take out your bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of god's word on this edition of the virtual bible study and welcome into the virtual bible study it is july 23rd 2009 we're live on your computer tonight thank you for being a part of the program. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is back after a week of absence. Welcome back to the program, Dan. Jacob, great to be back with you. Uh, actually, this is, I don't know whether this week or next week is a milestone week. Uh, uh, this week either concludes four full years of the virtual Bible study or it begins the fifth year. And I'm not exactly sure how that would break down. We'd have to go back and count up the weeks. But four years ago, in 2005, last Thursday in July, we began the virtual Bible study, so we've been at it for four full years. All right. Well, that's great, and our listeners uh, hopefully have benefited from those four years, and we have benefited from the study you and I have, Dad, as well. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think tonight will be another program in which we benefit, and hopefully you will as well. Our guest on the program tonight is a minister with the Reformed University Fellowship at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee, He is a Calvinist and believes in the doctrines of John Calvin. John Calvin has been in the news recently as it is his fifth, 500th birthday. We've been at this for four years. John Calvin lived 500 years ago, so that's a little different time frame. That's right, and uh, people today are still holding to his teachings and looking to him for guidance and interpreting the scriptures. Kevin Twitt is one of those, and he joins us on the phone tonight. Kevin, welcome to the Virtual Bible Study. Thanks. Glad to be here, guys. Appreciate you taking time to be a part of uh, our discussion tonight, Kevin. And uh, we uh, come at the at the scriptures from a different point of view, obviously. And so we thought we would benefit from tonight if uh, you would uh, present your um, approach to the scriptures as you understand them and uh, give us a, a brief overview of, of the doctrines of Calvin. So uh, before we begin uh, tonight, though, uh, Kevin, just to give us an idea of uh, your view of the scriptures, do you believe that the Bible is inspired? Well, of let's, God? let's first tell let's tell our listeners, Jacob, where uh, Kevin's affiliation. Uh, he, he works at Belmont University in Nashville, not as an employee of the university, but actually with the Reformed University Fellowship. Am I right, Kevin? Yeah, that's correct. That's a ministry of the Presbyterian Church in America is a uh, conservative, theologically conservative Presbyterian denomination. Yeah, I, I'm ordained in that denomination, and I'm their campus minister to work with students at the Belmont. I've right. been doing that for 14 years. 14 the, way years okay. the way we found out uh, about you and made contact with you, Kevin, was through an article. It was in the Nashville, Tennessee, and mm-hmm. that was talking about uh, sort of a revival of Calvinism. People, you're finding young people on college campuses, not just at Belmont, but the article suggests this is sort of a phenomenon going on everywhere, wherein young people have become sort of disillusioned with sort of the, uh, well, I, I don't want to use the wrong kind of terminology. Maybe you can help me explain it. So, <laughs> sort of a yeah. superficial form soft, of Christianity. Soft teaching. Yeah. Yeah, well, a I, lot of I, these mega churches—they're not getting—they're not getting any doctrine. They're not getting any real substance, and 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 they and they're longing for that. Yes, I think that's true. I, I think 
you know, one of the things that spurred on that article in the Tennessean is that Time magazine, not not but a couple months ago, had named Calvinism one of the ten ideas that was shaping our world today, which is pretty extraordinary because for a lot of people they would think Calvin has no relevance, didn't we deal with him and his crazy doctrines and sort of shove him off the stage years ago. But what's really going on is a lot of people are um, being interested in these ideas, and as they've studied the Bible, they've come to embrace doctrines that he uh, taught. Uh, most of them have never read Calvin, at least the students I'm dealing with. They read the Bible, and they find that, you know, that it talks about God's sovereignty and grace in bigger and more powerful ways than they had been taught. So, that, so the, what they're, they're sort of starved for doctrinal substance is what, what you're saying. They're, not just, they're just not getting that in a lot of yeah, these popular yeah. evangelical movements. I think that's true, yeah. Uh, quickly give us a, an overview of, of Calvin's life, where he was coming from, the time that he lived, and, right, uh, and right. approached it. You know, what, what, what drove him to his, uh, to his yeah. determinations? His views, yeah. Well, you know, Calvin lived a little after Luther. I mean, they overlap. He's about 20 years Luther's junior. So he's, you know, living in France, comes to an understanding of the gospel, gets converted. Obviously, he's raised as a Roman Catholic, but gets converted um, fairly early, we're not sure exactly when, you know, late teens, early 20s, somewhere around there, um, begins, you know, to, to study the scriptures. Within just a few years, he writes the first edition of his Christian Institutes, which basically for him, but Calvin's main concern always was to preach the Bible. Um, he preached through almost the entire Bible and wrote commentaries on almost the entire Bible, sometimes preaching eight to ten times a week. Um, he was thoroughly a man who wanted to expound the scriptures to people. Um, but he wrote the Christian Institute as sort of an introduction to the doctrines that the Bible teaches. So he publishes this book. It really is the first Protestant explanation of what Protestants believe. Luther had written things saying, here, we don't agree with the Catholics on A, B, C, and D. But Calvin was the first one to formulate and say, this is what Protestants believe. We don't need Catholics to fight against to say what we think the Bible believes. So Calvin, you know, does that. Um, he ends up, he really wanted to have a, a sort of a, sec, a secluded life of scholarship, but he's passing through Geneva. He had to leave France because his life was in danger. He's passing through Geneva, and this guy, William Farrell, who had brought the Reformation to Geneva, finds out he's there, and he goes and he pleads with Calvin to stay and help them in Geneva. Calvin doesn't want to do it, and Farrell <laughs> calls down a curse from God on his rest and his secluded study if he won't stay and help, and Calvin stays and helps. He does actually get kicked out of Geneva at one point, um, and a lot of people have real mistaken ideas about Calvin, that he ruled Geneva with an iron fist. In a lot of ways, um, the city council did all kinds of things that he didn't agree with. Eventually, kicked him out at one point. He couldn't get communion celebrated as often as he wanted. Um, but really, Geneva is where he lives out the rest of his life, for the most part, except for a little time in, in Strasbourg. So Calvin yeah. was living in a time when the Catholic Church was very corrupt. Luther maybe yeah. began, began noticing that, and some others as well. Uh, yeah. Calvin, Calvin then re- is is somewhat of a reactionary then to what he sees going on in the Catholic Church, and, and that prompts. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, reactionary somewhat. But I, I think what Calvin, particularly Calvin, wanted to say was he wanted to get back to the early church in worship. He wanted, he didn't want to start something new. I mean, my understanding, you know, of even the, the church y'all are affiliated with, that, that movement was a let's get back to the Bible. Yeah. Um, that's what the Reformation really was. 
Well, um, we, we make a little bit of a distinction between what we refer to as the Reformation movement and the Restoration movement. The, the, right, ref, yeah. the, the Reformers wanted to reform the Catholic Church and correct some of its abuses, as mm-hmm. I understand it historically. The Restorers said, listen, uh, the Catholic Church is not, you know is so far from New Testament Christianity. Let's just let's just abandon that and go back and try to establish Christianity as it existed in its first days. Right. Uh, uh, and so, uh, but but that idea and and from what you're saying there, I think that you you uh, have some of that same idea that that's really what we should be striving for. That we're that that we should not be devoted to the Catholic Church or any offshoot of it, but we ought to be trying well, to restore. Yeah, the- I mean, I'm, I'm trying. I, I would say it this way: that I want to get back to what the Bible has to say. That's great. I, I actually look at you know. I don't want to just throw out all the history of the Church, and I think that there have been true Christians and even the true gospel, though often quite muted, even in the Catholic Church. Um, I mean, Luther and Calvin and these guys learned the gospel while they were still in the Catholic Church, so it is possible. I wouldn't throw the whole baby out with the bathwater, but I'm not Catholic, um, and I'm not Catholic for good reasons, right? I thought through reasons. Um, Calvin, though, really did um, want to, you know, reform all of life according to the Scriptures. In a lot of ways, he um, goes beyond Luther. I've heard it said this way, that Martin Luther thought the biggest problem with the Catholic Church was works righteousness, that they were teaching that you could earn your way to heaven. And so he was willing to keep a lot of the ceremonies as long as he could sort of put a gospel spin on them and, and make it clear that this wasn't earning righteousness from Christ, from uh, God. But Calvin thought that the biggest problem was idolatry, that the Catholic Church had added all kinds of things that there was no warrant for uh, from the Scripture. They've added all these things, and he wanted to strip all that stuff out and get back. So he very much wanted to see himself in continuity with the early Church, stripped of all the medieval junk. Yeah. Uh, and what was interesting, you know, Calvin could beat the Catholics at their own game. They would quote the Church Fathers left and right, and he could quote them better than they could and show how, you know, much of what the Church Fathers said was more in line with what he thought the Scriptures believed rather than what the Catholics thought the Scriptures believed. If you'd like but to join... foremost, he really wanted to preach, and that's what he spent most of his time doing. If you'd like to join in the discussion tonight, the number to call is toll-free, 877-381-4567, or send your emails to questions at collegeu.com. We'll remind you you can join in the chat room with other listeners tonight if you'll follow the instructions that are scrolling on the bottom of your screen. We're talking with Kevin Twitt. He is with the Reformed University Fellowship in... Uh, Nashville, Tennessee, at Belmont University. Uh, Kevin, just so we're on on the same uh, playing field here, uh, from from our discussion so far, I think it'd be safe okay. to say you believe the Bible is inspired from God. Yeah, yeah, and, inerrant, inspired, yeah, infallible, all those things. And our only authority for things religious. Right. Yeah. Okay. The way we say it, the Presbyterian Church is it's our only rule for faith and practice. Okay. What we're to believe and what we're to do. All yeah. right. That's in, that's important, and that's and that's good yeah. that we're starting off with the same respect for uh, for the scriptures. Now, yeah. Cal- Calvinism is uh, is often referred to by the acronym TULIP, uh, yeah. which represents five tenets of of the doctrine doctrines that Calvin uh, held to. Um, you you, uh, you would agree with with the the Idea, yeah. you may not want yeah. to refer to it under with that same Yeah, the, the only thing I'd say about that is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fine to talk about that if that's the best way to structure our discussion. But it's important to know, historically, the Arminians are the ones who came up with five points, the five points of which they said, we differ with what everybody else believes, and here are the five points. And then the, the, the Church comes together 
for a thing called the Synod of Dort, and they come together to offer a response to these five points. So it doesn't cover the fullness of what Calvinism is. It just is five answers that Calvinism gave to five specific um, sort of disagreements that the Arminians have. So it's not the best way to explain Calvinism, but I know it's a historically you know, way that's been done, and, and I'm fine to talk about it that way. All right, the first of those is, is T, total hereditary depravity. Yeah. Uh, explain that for us. Yeah. I, I've never heard the word hereditary thrown in there, but total depravity means that um, mankind, after the fall, um, is unable to choose God, is unable to save himself, that um, sin stains everything we do, um, and that we inherit both guilt and pollution. In other words, we're screwed up and we're guilty because of um, because of original sin. And I know you guys don't agree with that one, but to, for a Calvinist, that's really a key one, um, because so okay. much of uh, the rest of Calvinism flows out of that. Let me let me read a couple quotes, uh, uh, Kevin, and see if you agree with with these statements. Uh, Edward Hiscox, in the Standard Manual for Baptist Churches, wrote. Being by nature utterly void of that holiness required by the law of God, positively inclined to evil, and therefore under just condemnation without defense or excuse. Does, yep. that, does that sound good to you? Sure, that's a strong way to say it, but I uh, agree with that. Lorraine Botner in the Reformed... Yeah. Uh, say it again? It's Bettner, but yeah. Bettner, okay. Mm-hmm. Lorraine Bettner in the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination says, Fallen man is so morally blind that he uniformly prefers and chooses evil instead of good as do the fallen angels or demons. Yes. And then uh, a rather famous debater that some of our listeners would know of, Ben Bogart, because he debated a number of Church of Christ preachers in in his time. Ben Bogart said the depraved sinner cannot act except by the enabling grace of God through the Spirit. Yes. Uh, I agree with that. So all of of these uh, statements uh, are suggesting that uh, as you said a minute ago, I have inherited, I have inherited the guilt of the very first sin that Adam and Eve uh, committed in the garden. I've inherited that guilt, but I also have been born with a depraved nature, uh, such that I cannot make even a choice towards serving God. Am I correct? Yeah, left to yourself. That's correct. Okay, Kevin. What are some passages that you would use uh, to 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 come to a conclusion like that. About that, yeah. I mean, one of the classic ones is long um, section in Romans chapter 3, where, you know, Paul actually quotes a whole bunch of different verses from the Old Testament. starts around verse 9. I could read some of it if you want. Sure. Um, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, as is written, and now it follows a bunch of quotes from the Old Testament. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Um, on and on, it talks, you know, goes on about that. Um, and then he says down in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says that to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Um, and, that, and then his conclusion, great conclusion, is therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Um, well, now, yeah. Kevin, I, yeah. I, of course, I obviously uh, believe Paul's statements in Romans three, but I, yeah. I don't see that. I don't see it, as I read that. I don't see that that's saying that that man has inherited this 
tendency yeah, yeah. or that that I see this as man has made the choice right. to turn yeah, from it's God. It's probably helpful, yeah, to distinguish. There's two questions. The one is, are we apart from Christ, unable to choose? And then the second question is, how did we become that way? Because I, you know, because you, I could see maybe you agree that you know an adult, at least an adult, because um, has who hasn't you know chosen God's ways is a sinner. Right. Right, and right. Without, and we could both agree on that, but we differ on how he became a sinner. Yeah, that's right. Let's yeah. let's let's start. Let's take that up on the other side of our break, uh, okay. Kevin. Uh, so yeah. we'll get our thoughts together, and we'd like for you to get your thoughts together and join in on the program. Eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven. Questions at collegeview. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. I'm Greg Gwynn, a host of the Virtual Bible Study. Thanks for joining us for tonight's program. The Virtual Bible Study is presented weekly by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Each week on the Virtual Bible Study, we simply engage in the study of God's Word in an effort to better understand it, better understand how God views us, and better understand what He wants from us in our lives. We're not studying any creeds. We're not studying any books written by men. We're just studying the Bible. And we're trying to study the Bible alone without any of our opinions or wisdom mixed in. We're only interested in what our Creator has revealed to us in his word. We realize that we're fallible and cannot direct our own steps. As a result, what we think or feel doesn't really matter. All that matters is what God has said. So that's what the virtual Bible study is all about. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Thanks again for joining us tonight, and we hope you'll make plans to join us every Thursday night for the virtual Bible study. My name is Cole, and I'm eight years old. My name is Thomas, and I'm seven years old. And our families love to listen to the virtual Bible study. We're waiting to hear from you. Call in right now and join in on the virtual Bible study. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to the virtual Bible study tonight. We're talking with Kevin Twitt from Belmont University, the Reformed University Fellowship there in Nashville. Uh, Kevin, thank you again for uh, joining us on the program tonight. Thank you. Hey, hey, Kevin, real quick, we've got a question in the chat room. Someone asked, is Kevin a four-point Calvinist or a five-point Calvinist? And then somebody else asked, what's that mean? What's the difference? What does that mean? I I understand that the five-point Calvinist would believe in all of those tenets that we described with the acronym TULIP. We're going to talk about them. And I think the four-point Calvinist does not – he believes in free will. Am I correct? Well, not generally, no. The four-point Calvinist is somebody that would say they don't believe in limited atonement. Limited atonement. I probably prefer to say definite atonement. I really don't think a four-point Calvinist is a Calvinist because, you know, as I'll, I, I could tell you, I mean, the five points are really five ways of saying the same thing. And, and, you and, believe, and they, all, they all work together. And if They all work together. They're all five, five vantage points of seeing the same um Idea. So, okay. so, so the four, four point, point, the so-called four-point Calvinist that our that our uh, yeah. person in the chat room was asking, he the, the, he does not believe that Jesus died yeah. only for certain ones. He, he believes right. that Jesus but, died but, for yeah. all. But the weird thing about it is, you've got the members of the Trinity in that theology operating across purposes because the Father only elects some. The Spirit only regenerates some, but Jesus died for all. Yeah, so that, it's a very strange. So it would be it would be inconsistent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, let, let us uh, let, let's get back. We, we were talking about this idea of, of uh, uh, inherited depravity. Yes. Uh, that I'm guilty. That I've inherited guilt. That I'm responsible, accountable uh, for the sins of my fathers. How do you how do you deal with? I'm sure you've heard these kind of verses, like Ezekiel 28 at verse 15, where it says. Um, Wait a minute, I've got the wrong verse here. 
verse 15, maybe? Well, I still haven't found the right passage. Uh, I think I got the wrong chapter. Ezekiel 28, 15 says, uh, Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day thou was created till iniquity was found yeah, in thee. Yeah, that's the verse I wanted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, quote from the King James, you are? Or yeah, that's the King James, right. Translation, yeah. Um, that word translated perfect, a lot of the other translations say blameless, doesn't mean um, without sin at all. That's an important thing to know or you're going to miss out a lot of the Old Testament. It means that you're basically morally upright in your character. It doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean Job was perfect when it says that he was blameless. Um, perfect. The, the English word perfect, as we understand it now, is a much stronger word than that Hebrew word, which but, basically means a morally upright person. Kevin, but yeah. that doesn't that, in, its, in and of itself, doesn't that definition contradict the total depravity uh, definition that Calvin wants us to believe, that we are totally depraved, we can't do anything good in right. and of itself, whereas the idea here, you say, means that we're basically morally good? No, what I say is morally upright. He's, he has a good character before men. That doesn't mean that from God's perspective that he's perfect. Um, it's also important to know that balanced in with this is God's common grace, where he um, enables people or, or you know, even keeps people from being as bad as they could be and even want to be. So you have God's restraining grace. You have God's common grace that he gives to all people so that, um, for instance, Jonathan Edwards distinguished between true virtue and common virtue, and that's important. So when a Calvinist says that, some, that somebody's totally depraved, that doesn't mean that they're as bad as they could be. It doesn't mean that we sort of get rid of categories that say this person who was an axe murderer um, indeed did things that this other person didn't do. They're all alike sinners before God and worthy of judgment, but we can still make distinctions between um, various people. And so we can make distinctions between somebody who's morally upright, basically, even though they're not, they're not pure before God. What about Ezekiel? What about Ezekiel 18, verse 20. That 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 verse that has been sent, that verse has been sent into the chat room as well from uh, someone a listener Ezekiel eighteen the, the, verse twenty. The soul that sinneth it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. Neither shall the father bear the yeah. iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. How do you yeah. how do you answer that verse in light of your view that you have right. you have in fact inherited the sins of your father? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, there there are passages in the Old Testament that say the opposite, right? Um, for instance, you know, in Exodus, there's a passage that says that um, God will punish the, you know, the sins of the fathers on the children for multiple generations. Well, so, I think those verses are teaching, and it was true that the offspring of, of the Israelites suffered the consequence of their fathers' bad bad choices against God. But it yeah. doesn't say that they were held morally accountable for the for the sins of their fathers. And right. Uh, Ezekiel, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, yeah, well, verse 29. I mean, I, that, I mean, Ezekiel 18, 20, if you want me to respond sure, to it. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, it is, it is focusing there on the fact that the one who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father. We don't believe, Calvinists don't believe, that, that every person shares the sin of their immediate father. We believe, as Romans 5 says, that Adam was a unique representative that represented the human race, just as Christ who was the second Adam, represented uh, his people. So we believe what's called federal headship. In other words, just like the president, if he, you know, declares war and the Congress goes along with it, it doesn't matter whether you voted for him, we're at war. And we believe that the, that's what the Bible teaches about both um, guilt, that is imputed, we use the word imputed to us, 
and also the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. Now, you may not like the idea that, that God imputes Adam's guilt to us, that another person could represent us, but then you're going to have some real problems when you come to try to understand how can Jesus be our Savior if imputation and having a representative doesn't, doesn't work or doesn't fit your idea of fairness. Quickly, we've got a lot of ground to cover here, Kevin, but quickly, yep. before we pass from this point, let me ask you one other verse that, that I'd like you to explain, because I don't, I don't see this the way that you're describing it. Sure. And, and in Matthew 18, verse yep. 3, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Uh, if, if children are born with a depraved nature, as you suggest, as Calvin uh-huh. suggested, How's, how do we how do we harmonize that with the statement of Jesus that we need to be? In well, other words, if children I mean, are born depraved, why do we need to become like them? Mm-hmm. I thought the Ezekiel passages were are, are difficult for a Calvinist to explain. This one, not so. I mean, you're basically assuming a particular understanding of what's most important about being a child, that when Jesus says become like a little child, he's talking about their innocence. The passage says nothing of the kind. So you're you're kind of begging the question. I, I don't think this passage is a problem for Calvinists at all. Um, it depends on what Jesus is referring to when he says, "Become like a little child." What, what, how do you what do you view him referring to then? Well, I, I think like uh, a childlike faith and belief, um, certainly. But uh, you know, children sin <laughs> without a doubt. Um, I mean, you, you got to go to Romans five. I mean, why do people die between Adam and Moses? Paul says it's because sin has entered the world. They didn't sin by breaking a particular transgression of the moral law, but they died because sin in the world. I don't understand how you, with the Church of Christ, right, Pelagian kind of understanding, can make sense of why babies die before they reach the age of accountability. Can you explain that to me? We believe, I, I believe it's a consequence of sin, but it's not their their sin guiltiness. In other words, the, before so sin, God before kills, sin so God kills the world. babies that are sinners. No, this is just a consequence of sin that entered the world. When sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. one of the consequences was that death entered into the world. It didn't exist before that. Mm-hmm. And so now we all we all have, because we don't have access to the tree of life, we all have the 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 consequence. In other words, uh, if, if, a, if a lot of times we suffer the consequences of other people's yeah, sins. Yeah, I understand that. What, what Paul says in Romans 5 is death came because all sinned. He links death with sin. Yeah, but... Uh, Not Ke- just with the consequences. Kevin, there are two deaths. You agree with that, right? Yeah. A physical death and a spiritual death? Yes. And so he, but, would, he, would, he would say that the spiritual death comes because all have sinned. So you don't think physical death is in reference there? No, no. Yeah, I, think, I think without a doubt it is because that's why Genesis 5, what we call the death chapter helps us understand that physical death came as a result of sin. Well, I, I believe physical death in the world is a consequence of sin, uh, yep, the sin of Adam. That, that was part of the curse. Yeah, here's, 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 here's an example of why I say it would be spiritual death, Kevin. In, in chapter 7 of Romans, verse 9, Paul, Paul is referencing uh, a death there. In Romans chapter 7, verse 9, he says, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Well, so Paul yeah. was still alive, so the death, he, sure, yeah. the death that he's referring to there is the spiritual death. He, at, at, a, at some point in Paul's life, he became accountable to the law of God. 
And, um, and, I, and, no, gosh, and, I don't think that's what Romans 7 is talking about. And at that did, point, he did died. He, not, like, for years and years, um, he lived as a man, and he didn't understand the Bible, and then, so he was still spiritually alive? You think Romans 7 is talking about the point at which he becomes spiritually dead because he finally understands the law? What? That would be like saying that until somebody understands the law, that they're spiritually alive. Do you believe that? Uh, well, no, I don't. I don't believe that. But I believe there's a point in time when Paul became accountable to God. How do you explain that he was alive without the law once? Oh, I, I think he, what he means there. I think it's kind of um, poetic, not poetic language, but it's 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 the language of he felt himself to be a sinner. But I don't think he's saying that he actually spiritually died at the point that he. Uh, I mean, to make sense of, of that statement of Paul's, you need to understand what the Jews believed. And the Jews didn't believe that people that were apart from the law were spiritually alive. You understand what I'm saying? Like, you're, you're using that Romans 7 passage to say that he didn't spiritually die until he read the law saying, do not covet. No, what we're using Romans 7 to do is show that Paul's talking about, not necessarily talking about physical death, but spiritual yeah. death. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. I agree with you, but I think that he was already spiritually dead before he read Romans 7, or before he read the law that said, do not covet. And I think what he's talking about in Romans 7 is not something that happened to him when he was a child. I think he's talking about his conversion to Christ, which we know was, was you know, an adult man. He was already, a, you know, a member of the Sanhedrin. He was well-versed in the Scriptures. He understood the law, but he'd never, he didn't really understand it. It hadn't really hit home with him in his heart. And that's what he's talking about. When he came under conviction and he saw himself as deserving death before before God. But he deserved it already. He's talking to Romans 7 about when he came to, to understand the reality. All right, uh, Kevin, we are uh, we're running out. It's almost, it's already we time. We better move faster, huh? Yeah, yeah we got to yeah. move faster. <laughs> like I said, at, least, at least in this way, I mean, total poverty is key because, for instance, Romans 8, 7, is, it says that, you know, the, the, spirit, the, the man without the spirit um, does not submit to God's law. He cannot do so. Okay, so we'll, we'll you know, talk- for us, it's very important that you understand that if you if you make any spiritual moves toward God, it's because God is at work in you. We'll talk about you. we'll talk, talk about that when we get to the unconditional election. We're going to talk about that yep. on the other side of the break. So uh, get your comments in now. You can join in over the phone or over email. We're looking forward to hearing from you. The virtual Bible study continues after these messages. Did you hear what they just said? Call in during this break and let everyone know what you think. The virtual Bible study continues after this announcement. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's Bullet Point. From time to time, you might hear someone described as high maintenance. It could be a man referring to his girlfriend or a husband discussing his wife or vice versa. The phrase might be used in regards to any person who shares a relationship with others. The meaning of the expression is this. This particular individual requires constant attention. They expect and demand that others will attend to their every whim and expectation. Typically, these people will not do anything for others because it seems that it never crosses their mind to think about what someone else might want or need. Their total emphasis is on me, me, me. Unfortunately, there are some members of the church who are high maintenance. These are the folks who are always complaining about things that they feel should have been done for them. I was sick and no one came to see me. I was overlooked when someone was selected for a certain position. I have never been invited to so-and-so's house for a meal. I wasn't included when some others made plans to do this or that. And so on it goes. 
A little investigation will show that this high-maintenance individual has never done any of these things for anyone else. Usually these folks are not particularly friendly, almost never show hospitality, don't visit the sick, never see about the needs of others, and generally ignore any situation that doesn't involve their own interests or desires. They are self-centered and full of self-pity. Such folks need to learn to look outside their own circle to realize that self is not the most important thing. Paul said it this way, quote, In lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. I'm James Buchanan from Columbia, Tennessee, and I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. Share your comment with the world. Call in now and be a part of the virtual Bible study. Now, back to the program. And welcome back to the virtual Bible study tonight. We're glad you're a part of the program. We're talking with Kevin Twitt of Nashville, Tennessee. He believes in the doctrines of John Calvin. John Calvin is 500 years old uh, today, or this this month, I guess. And Kevin uh, works with uh, students on the Belmont University campus in the Re- Reformed University Fellowship. Kevin, thanks for being with us tonight. Yep. We've, we've talked about the uh, idea of total depravity, the idea that you are born uh, in a depraved state. And now, if we are in that state, then, Kevin, you believe in the next logical uh, conclusion would be then that we cannot decide that we want to be servants of God, that God has to then choose us. He, yeah. he has so, to choose us know, and I, act upon our spirit in such a way to receive him or turn to him. Uh, sorry, I missed the beginning of that. What? He would, he would, it, it, he, he, since we can't make this choice, he makes the choice yeah. and then acts upon our spirit in such a way that we will seek him. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I probably would state it a little differently. First, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't say I believe the next point just because it logically comes. Um, as a matter of fact, there's some things about Calvinism that I think sort of press against logic. I mean, I really think a true Calvinist is someone who believes that God is sovereign and that man is responsible. I think both of those things are taught clearly in the Scripture. There are places where they're taught right next to each other, like Acts 2 and Acts 4, where it says, for instance, things like, you know, this man Jesus, you know, was handed over, you know, by the hands of wicked men, was put to death, and and they did. These wicked men did what God had foreordained and determined would happen. So that human responsibility, they're wicked. But it was what God intended to happen, His sovereignty together. How do you how do you get those two to work out though? How, how can how do well, that's the, yeah that's the question. See, and this is what I think is interesting about the postmodern generation versus when I worked with students 15, 20 years ago. Um, Arminians, I believe, resolve that tension. I agree that that's a tension. What I just said, it seems logically incompatible. I think both of those things are taught in Scripture, and we need to hold on to both of them. An Armenian would say they're incompatible. We have to get rid of God's sovereignty because we have to hold on to man's responsibility. A hyper-Calvinist also would try to logically explain away the tension by saying that basically man's a robot. He's not really responsible, but God is sovereign, and we can't you know, knock down God's sovereignty at all, so we need to get rid of human responsibility. I believe they're both taught in the Scripture, and you need to hold on to them. And to tell you the truth, I don't think the cross makes any sense if you don't have both of those intentions. Because if Jesus didn't come to do what God had planned from before the foundation of the world, the cross couldn't have been God's plan. It would have been basically him making the best of a bad situation. My Messiah got put to death. Well, I guess I'll count that for these people. No, he intended to do it. He planned it. It was his. It was his plan. We sovereignly executed. We, we believe you that. You believe that, of course. Sure. So, yeah. And then yeah. also, you believe, and I do too, that he died for sinners who had sinned, who were morally responsible for what they'd done. Now we can argue about were they morally responsible. 
you know, before they read the law or not. But at some point, we come together and believe at least a lot of these people are morally responsible. So we get to the second one. People that are sinners, how can they come to Christ? Unconditional election says that it comes because God makes the first move. Let let me read this to you from the Westminster Confession. Yeah. By decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined to everlasting life and others are foreordained to everlasting death. And the Confession of the Faith of the Presbyterian Church says... Yeah, yeah, right. I've taken a vow to say that I believe that's, that teaches what the Scriptures teach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the number, of, the number, and they're talking about of, of saved, yeah. is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. Right. Okay. Uh, first question. I, I mean, I, I don't see this. I, I just can't harmonize those statements with what I read in the Scripture. And I want to okay. ask you about a couple yeah. of verses in a minute. But, sure. but, but before I even get to that, Kevin... I guess from my point of view, my question would be, why do you bother? Why why are you doing what you do? Why do you devote yourself to working with young people, uh, oh, yeah. trying to trying to stimulate their interest in spiritual things, trying to get them uh, interested in pursuing God? Why bother? If if the number is fixed and set, why yeah. would you engage in your activities? Yeah. Well, again, I think you're missing the human responsibility, divine sovereignty tension. The Bible never says that because of predestination or God's foreordination that evangelism is unnecessary. Um, I would say, one my quick answer would be Acts 13.48. Do you want to look at that and read that? You say Acts 13? Yeah, Acts 13.48. Okay, Acts 13.48 says, uh, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Good. So this is a response to Paul's preaching. And what's interesting about this passage is that Luke, who's writing this, is not making an argument for predestination. He just says the reason these people believed is because they were foreordained. The reason people responded to the preaching is they were foreordained. So the reason I do what I do is because I believe that God can actually change hearts. I remember one time I was in a Bible study. This was when my sister uh, wasn't a believer. And I remember the Bible study leader taking prayer requests, and he prayed in a consistently Arminian way. He would never pray for the Lord to change my sister's heart. He would only pray that the Lord would send harvesters. That is so weak compared to what the Bible has to say. I believe the Bible teaches that God can change hearts, and unless he does, we're without hope. So, well, you know, but, but, the number, but the number, the Presbyterian, yeah. the Presbyterian Confession of Faith says the number yeah. cannot be increased or diminished. In other words, sure. the, those elected are going to be saved whether, right. whether you do your work or not. Well, that's not what Reformed theology means. And if you read the rest West, of the Westminster Confession, it has a chapter on means um, and ends and how we can understand that human uh, secondary causes are real and matter. So we don't, we don't just believe that because the number is set that it's irrelevant whether or not we evangelize. Okay. That's never been part of Calvinism. All right. We that's got, hyper-Calvinism. Uh, okay. All right. Let's go to Illinois. Uh, Victor is on the line. Victor, welcome, okay. to, the, welcome to the Virtual Bible Study. Uh, thank you. I uh, wanted to ask you a question. Uh, could you explain Mark chapter 16 15? Uh, he told the apostles to preach the gospel to every creature. You see, he didn't tell them to go out and preach to only the elect. So could you explain that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Okay, we're going to... We're getting a bad thank, thanks for, thank you. Yeah, bad echo on there. Yeah, yeah. Thank yeah. you for calling, Victor. Good, yeah. yeah. Well, see, here's the thing. I mean, in some ways it's hard to take, you know, the tulip, the unconditional election limited atonement, and irresistible grace separately, because we're basically talking about is three ways of looking at the same thing. We believe that you are to preach the gospel to everybody, 
Um, the Bible, I mean, for instance, Acts, you know, Acts 17, Paul says that God commands all men everywhere to repent. We believe that, and, and we believe it's important to share the gospel with everybody, but we believe, like Acts 1348 says, that if people respond, it's because God is doing a work beyond just our persuasion. Right? We believe that, uh, like, for instance, in First Thessalonians, Paul says, you know, we know, brothers loved by God, that you were chosen because the gospel came to you not merely with words, but with power and deep conviction. So we see the responding to the gospel as evidence that God has moved on these people's hearts. We don't believe that we persuade people. We believe that our job is to sow the seed, and God gives growth and life where he intends. The numbers, it's not stamped on anybody's head. I, I'm still, I'm still, not, you know? I, 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 I hear your answer, uh, Kevin, yeah. but I've, I've still, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, somehow or another I can't make that fit with the idea that n- the number can't be enlarged or diminished. And but so, I don't know the number. I don't know the number. But God, God does. But number. God does. And, and yeah. according to Calvin's uh, theology, the, the elect would be saved irregardless. And no, so, that's not true. It, the, the, well, then the, the number would be diminished. Say that. Then the, the, the number would be that. diminished. If, if, if you didn't preach the word and they never heard and, they, and the seed was never sown and that, and that soul was lost, then that would account to yeah. the number being diminished. Yeah, here's here, you know here's the the problem. I, I don't think we're going to get very far if we just try to argue this logically. I admit to you that the, there's a tension in the Bible here. But what I showed you in Acts thirteen forty eight is the reason the Bible gives for people responding to preaching is because they're foreordained. In First Thessalonians, the reason Paul gives that he knows that they're loved by God and that they're elect is because of the way they responded to the gospel. Now, well, you and I may not understand how that can fit I, together, I shouldn't but let, that's what the Bible says. I shouldn't let Acts 13.48 leave without some explanation from my point of view. Sure. Uh, when it says, as many as were ordained to eternal life believe, no, God has ordained eternally that those who believe and are obedient will be saved. And so well, I, I, I take this verse to mean as many as were ordained to eternal life, believe. That is, the ordination was that those who believe and obey, the God's plan, his set His set uh, purpose was that those who believe and obey will be saved. Yes. And that's, and that's what that verse is saying. Yeah. Now, I don't think that's a good interpretation for this reason. Well, what you're saying is ordained is a process. But what the verse says is ordained is people, particular people. No, I Same believe thing it. with, with it says well, well, when, when we get to, when we get to, when we get to, uh, uh, some of these other verses, some of the verses that talk about predestination and so forth. Yeah. But we're going to quickly run out of time. Before we pass, we need to move on. But i got to ask you about 1 yeah. Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, which says God will have all men to be saved and come to the yeah. knowledge of the truth. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I believe that the Bible teaches that God desires and doesn't delight in the death of wicked and desires for people to come to believe in him. But there's difference between general statements like that and a universalistic statement that's saying that he does save everybody. You don't believe he saves everybody, neither do no, I. No, but, I, but he right. wants to. I well, believe he I, wants to. You don't yeah. believe he wants to. No, no, I do. I affirm that because the Bible affirms it. Even though I recognize its intention with um, him not ordaining all, I, I just think that it's it's something I have to agree is intention in the Bible. Well, yeah, it's a tension. It's a contradiction. The, the, it's not a contradiction unless you want to say that God's word contradicts. Well, what about? Well, no, we have to make it. We have to harmonize it. That's why I think that the that the interpretation, some of the, some of the interpretation, of some of the passages that you're making, forces a contradiction. Second uh, Peter three verse nine says that God's not willing that any should perish. Yes, any but, of you, any of you, and he's writing, you know, to the elect. That's how he starts the letter. 
Yeah, okay. but it, it doesn't say any of you there. No, no, well, it just, it's there in the Greek, and it's in all the other translations, even though it's not in your point games. Okay. Well, let, let's go on. Let's quickly go on because we, we – Oh, but before we do, though, that, and, and we need to take a break, but uh, to, you, you, you talk about these things being intention, though, Kevin. Um, yeah. If God chooses who – He's going to save. Then he by default, by default, chooses who will go to hell. Um, yeah. Though, notice the confession that you read says foreordains. I prefer to use well, not prefer, but I think it's important to use the word predestination the way the Bible does. It never says people are predestined to hell, but it, uh, but foreordained. I think certainly, um, and we could look at Ephesians one where you know he worked out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Yeah, I believe that. So, so again, that, that, that would be a contradiction with this idea that he wants everyone to be no, saved. It would, it would only be a contradiction if one passage said he saves everybody and another passage says he doesn't save everybody. He can, if you can understand even analogies, again, analogies are hard, but, you know, how I cannot desire to inflict pain upon my child, but still I have to spank him sometimes. Right? I think we have to understand that there's some mystery here with God that he can say, Without shame, without blushing, I don't delight in the death of the wicked. I desire for all to be saved, and yet at the same time say that he ordains some, and everything that happens is according to the purpose of his plan. And I don't know why he doesn't ordain all people. I know that clearly the Bible says he doesn't. Even at the same time it says uh, ordains all to life, even though it says he desires that. That's a tension, but I think everybody's got to live with that tension because you have the tension of why didn't he, why did he create people knowing that they weren't going to choose him? Well, Does that I, mean loving? Well, I, I, I don't know that I would agree with that statement. I, okay. I think that he's given all men free moral agency, and therefore he leaves that up. In other words, we're not pre-programmed. But he doesn't even know what they'll do. He, uh, he, he could know, but he doesn't. He doesn't influence that. He can know without. Or, he. he uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure our finite minds can grasp it, but I believe that God is able to know things without influencing the outcome of them. But uh, okay, that's something. So, that, so that's that's, that's a whole that, other thing. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, just because you reject Calvinism, you still have a dilemma uh, of God creating people that He knows are not going to choose Him, and I don't know why that doesn't bother you. Again, I don't think that fairly represents what I think about it. But okay. l- let's uh, let's take a break. we got to hurry to the top of the hour with uh, <laughs> some more questions about Calvinism. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin. We'll be right back after this break. All right. Have you checked out all of the resources on collegeview.com lately? Check it out now while you listen to these important messages. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. Hello, everyone. I'm Monty, a member of the College View Church of Christ. So if you've been hearing all about the College View Church of Christ on the virtual Bible study and are interested in finding out more about the church, but you live hundreds of miles away from Columbia, Tennessee, and can't come and visit with the congregation to find out more, there's no reason to fear. After all, we live in the 21st century. Here's what you can do to find out more about the College View Church of Christ. First, why don't you check out our website while you're listening to the virtual Bible study? You'll find important information about the church there, including bulletin articles there on various subjects and can even listen to sermons that have been presented at the College View Church in the past. Secondly, if you have questions about the church or about any Bible teaching, why don't you send an email to us and let us know how we can help. Send your questions to questions at collegeview.com. That address, once again, is questions at collegeview.com. We can even have a personal Bible study with you over email if you desire. And finally, if you would rather talk with someone in person, give us a call at 931-381-4567. That's 
381-4567. You can call this number anytime. If you don't get an answer, leave a message and we'll call you back as soon as we can. We're glad you're listening to the virtual Bible study and hope to hear from you soon. I am Nestor Sanchez from Arica, Chile in South America, and I love to listen to the virtual Bible study. And this moment, I invite you to participate in this program too. Gracias. Broadcasting around the world with truths that are out of this world. The Virtual Bible Study. Take it away, guys. And welcome back to the Virtual Bible Study tonight. We're glad that you're a part of the program. And we encourage you to get in touch with us, 877-381-4567, or email questions at collegeview.com. And you can join in the chat room tonight. We haven't been very diligent with the chat room, but there have been some comments there. And um, I think we've already passed what... uh, the comments were about so we'll keep pushing forward instead of going back we were talking with kevin witt from nashville about uh, the doctrines of calvinism and we appreciate kevin being a part of the program we still have three more to go uh in the in the five tenets that we wanted to talk about tonight but um we may not get to them all but what about uh limited atonement kevin we yeah. know that uh, you said earlier you know and i i had not really until recently heard someone described as a four point calvinist right uh but uh as you said earlier the the those who supposedly describe themselves that way do not believe in limited atonement they uh, right. but, but the idea of limited atonement i've got a quote from the reformed doctrine of predestination right. it says if god has elected some and not others to eternal life then plainly the primary purpose of christ's work was to redeem the elect now, to me, that makes sense. In other words, if some are chosen to be saved and others are not, then Jesus really only died for the ones that were chosen to be saved. Right. And that and, and is that a fair explanation of the idea of limited yeah, atonement? Yeah, again, I think, you know, Bettner's book that you just quoted from, you know, maybe puts it more as, of course, it's built on logic. It's the logical thing. I, I think, really, limited atonement is the one that, that that name sounds so weird and hard. Of course, everybody believes that atonement is limited at some level. You don't believe he died for chickens. You know, it's limited. It's not for angels. Um, so it doesn't really get at what separates Calvinists and other Christians that there's a dispute in this issue. A better way to think of it is, what did Christ's death on the cross achieve? Did it make men savable if they join their faith to it, or does it actually save men? I don't think the Bible actually talks very much about how many people Christ died for. I think there's some passages that... Well, now, wait just a minute before... I mean, it's interesting yeah. that you said that that way. First yeah. John 2, verse 2 says, He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for yeah. our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. That's right. I know. Hebrews so, 2, verse yeah. 9 says, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he might, by the grace of God, taste death for every man. Yes. And again, you know, I still believe that those are general statements, not universalistic statements. In other words, does the Bible say he died for each and every person? And, and what does died for mean? That, that, those are the things that are debated in this, in this view. What a Reformed person believes is that, a Calvinist, if you will, believes, is that God, that Jesus died for in the place of, as a substitute, for all those who are going to be saved, that is, the elect. What we object to, other believers, we, we say other believers don't really believe that, um, that, God died, that Christ died as a substitute. Because his death is not enough to save you uh, in other theological schemes. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, used an illustration that, you know, you got this cavern, you got this valley, you either have a narrow bridge that goes all the way across, or you've got a wide bridge that doesn't make it across. And Calvinists say, yes, it's a narrow bridge, but it gets you all the way across. It saves people. That's why Hebrews 1 says, after he purged our sins, he sat down. So what happened at the cross 
finished the work. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. He didn't say, I've, I've taken the first step, and now you need to put your faith in and mix it all together, and then out comes salvation. What, what verses would you use then for the idea that his atonement was limited? Well, I, I would rather refer to his atonement is definite and that his, the work was completed. I think Hebrews 1 is a good one. I think Matthew one twenty one. his name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Uh, Romans chapter 5 sometimes says he died for the many, sometimes it says he died for all. I don't think that passage you can prove either way. I think, again, that um, the Bible uses general language when it talks about the world, but um, there are some passages where, for instance, Isaiah 53, you know, that he suffers for his sheep, um, lots of things. John 6, where he talks about, you know, uh, I mean, in John's Gospel, there's this whole idea that there's a certain number that the Father has given to the Son, and the Son um, says that he'll draw all those that the Father has given to him to him. You read in John 17, at the high priestly prayer, that all those the Father give, gave to him, he kept, uh, except the Son of Perdition, who was, you know, destined for for hell from the beginning, all, all that kind of stuff. So, I know, I know it sounds crazy. I, let me say this. The, the reason I became Reformed, I didn't grow up Reformed by any means. I grew up in the Episcopal Church. I got converted through a parachurch ministry. Um, but at one point I had friends that had their Calvinist verses, friends that had their Arminian verses, and I really thought I should just sit down and read the book of Romans from beginning to end with two color highlighters. And every time it said, you know, God is sovereign, I'm going to color in one color. And every time it talked about man's free will, I'm going to color in another color. Because I want to get the big picture. And I tell you, I got done with that. It took about three hours. I encourage anybody and everybody to do it. It's good to read big sections of Scripture like that. I came away saying it seems that the big picture is that God is sovereign. Now I have to fit some verses into that scheme, no doubt. Um, but so do the Armenians. But it seemed to me the big picture. And the thing I, that really got with me was Romans 9. I had a lot of Armenian friends that had explained away Romans 9 so that it didn't bother them, like you all did earlier with you know, um, predestination or foreordination is God seeing who's going to choose, looking in the future, and then ordaining them. And that seems to make it acceptable and palatable. And nobody would be bothered if that's what predestination was. Nobody would be upset by it. But when I read Romans 9, when Paul explains it, he expects people to object. And what I tell people is, you may not like what Paul's saying, but if you object the way he anticipates you objecting, you are tracking with what he's saying. He expects you to say, that's not fair. He expects you to say, why does God blame me if he's the one who made me as I am? Paul says, you're going to object that way if you understand what I'm saying. So that, that's, you know, maybe So that's my, what convinced that, you that even though you, you admit to the, as you use the word, tensions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, that, I, that the big picture was God saves people. That's what the Bible teaches. God saves people. He doesn't just make them savable. And God, what Christ did, fits in with what the Spirit does and fits in with what God the Father does. All right, so real, real quickly, real yep. quickly, Kevin, before we run out of time, or we're just about out of time. Yeah. Obviously, so uh, certain ones are uh, unconditionally elected to salvation. Jesus died for these ones. Yep. His atonement yep. is limited to them. They are going to be drawn, irresistible grace. Yeah. Hiscox yeah. in his standard, standard manual for Baptist Church has said that regeneration consists in giving a holy disposition to the mind that is that it is affected in a manner above our comprehension by the Holy Spirit in connection with divine truth so as to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel. Right. In other words, he's going to, he's going to, the Holy Spirit's going to act upon such a person to yep. draw them. The way the Bible says it, take away your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. The Bible's word for your will is the heart. Is the, the heart. Well, you, you, you quoted earlier from, 
Paul's teaching in Antioch uh, in Acts 13. But in yeah. that same chapter, Acts 13, verse 46, mm-hmm. Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. No, no, right. this idea of irresistible grace suggests that, oh, yeah, it, yeah. It, 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 of course, it fits in with, I mean, I understand yeah, how it's yeah, connected yeah. to the theology, but it doesn't seem yeah. to be connected to the well, scriptures when the scriptures well, say that though. people yeah. make a choice. Yeah, well, I, and I agree with you at some, some level here. The word irresistible grace is confusing. Calvinists don't believe that people don't resist the grace, don't resist the gospel. Of course they do. What we believe is that um, we are made willing in the day of God's power, as one of the Psalms says in the Old King James. That um, when God says, today, finally, this is the day of salvation, I'm not taking no for an answer anymore, changes our heart of stone to a heart of flesh and moves us to obey him, Ezekiel 36, right? So that's what we believe. We don't believe that somebody who's chosen might not resist for 20, 30, 40, 50 years and get converted on their deathbed. We believe that people resist, but we believe that when God says, enough is enough, and he sends salvation that at that point we respond. Okay, that, that, that's what I mean. So we don't believe that, we don't agree, we don't think that nobody resists. We've got about two minutes to discuss the, the last of the five points, and that would be perseverance of the saints. Yep. Um, or do you agree with the terminology, once saved, always saved? I don't like that terminology. Okay. I, think it, it, I think it makes way too flat an issue that has a lot more nuance. Again, well, I think here's the, the, here's the Westminster Confession, Kevin, uh, and yep. you said you've acknowledged this. Yeah, right. They, they whom God hath, ex- they whom God hath accepted yep. in His beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. That's right. You can't fall from grace. That's right. Well, uh, now, again, I wouldn't say it that way. I would say that true Christians persevere. First well, John two right says that they they went out from us and they're going out shows they were not of us. Well, I understand that. Yeah, but yeah, I don't take that same twist on that verse. I don't have time to to try to explain that, but I want to ask you about Galatians five four, which right. says that some it, it, those who were Christians who yeah. who would then try to be justified by the law, he says you are fallen from grace. Yes. Well, you can't believe. fall from something that you weren't once in, right? Well, you can't fall. No, no, out, you see, can't. We always said you can't fall out of boat out of a boat if you weren't first in the boat. Yeah, yeah. How well, can you fall out of grace if you weren't first yeah. in grace? Listen, I think the problem is the the way that that phrase "fallen from grace" is used is used differently and different by different people. The confession of faith doesn't mean, uh, and when Reformed people say you can't fall from grace, we're not using it in the same way Paul is in Galatians. Paul in Galatians is saying you've turned away from the message of grace. He's not saying you've lost your salvation. Okay, well, if you don't like that one, then let, real quickly, because we're just out of time, yeah. and I sure do appreciate you, your willingness to deal yeah, with these verses, but Second Peter chapter 2, verse 20, I know you're familiar with this passage. Mm-hmm. It speaks of some who, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Remember, it refers to them yeah. as like a dog turning to his own vomit yeah. again. Yeah. Uh, how well, is yeah, that so- yeah, again, I think there, there are certainly Christ, people who think that they're Christians and look like Christians who aren't truly regenerate. I think no, that's well, this, this says they had But this, this, this they is They say scripture. they're like a dog that returns to its vomit. It doesn't say that they're Christians who lose their salvation. No, be, uh, yes, it does, because it said that they had escaped the pollutions of the world. In other words, they had been do saved. You think Judas, do you think Judas had escaped that? I mean, the Bible says that Judas, they, when Judas, you know, when they went and cast out demons... And then, you know, Judas seemingly was part of that, right? 
I mean, when it, when Jesus said, want to use a traitor, they didn't all say, well, it must be Judas. He couldn't test out demons like the rest of us. There are things that people or members of churches do and experience that um, are gracious influences upon them that do not come to bring them to salvation. And so I don't believe those people have lost salvation. I believe that they've fallen away from the gracious influences and the opportunity that they have. Real quick, I got we got an email from Art in Kalioka who asked about Hebrews 3.12 in this, in this connection. Take hmm. heed, brethren, written to brethren, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Yep. I mean, again, I think the book of Hebrews, as I take it, is written to a mixed group of people who are Christians and people in the church who aren't Christians. And so the brethren is uh, is not uh, a, a theological statement saying we know that you're saved. Uh, it, it is a statement of addressing a, a mixed population. And I think a lot of the really? New Testament letters are doing that. Yeah. I, I got one more email I want you to, to address from uh, – well, now I've lost it um, – it, 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 it was from Keith in uh, uh, Hendersonville, Tennessee. Lynch, Lynchburg. Oh, it was from Keith in Lynchburg, Tennessee. And he asked, were Adam and Eve free moral agents? Did they have choice? Yeah. Yeah, reform people believe that. And then after after Adam and Eve, then that, that went away? Yep. Okay. All right. Well, Kevin, we are out of time, and we could have gone. We probably could have gone three or four more hours. <laughs> That's right. Well, you want to talk about it again? Call me up again sometime. Well, it's really inter- we really do appreciate you uh, sharing your thoughts with us, and yeah, and, and this give and take. I think I think whenever people, I mean, we we share a common interest in the scriptures and in understanding yeah. the will of God, and when we talk about our differences, it can only help. It can't hurt. Yeah, and I want people to know that we agree on way more than we disagree on. Okay. Thank you, Kevin, for yeah. your participation tonight. Yeah. Thank, All you, right. Thank you. Bye, bye. All right. And uh, we appreciate you being a part of the program tonight. We hope you benefited from our discussion. Dad, we, we, we have to say thanks to Kevin for his excellent uh, attitude. And we had a we had a good discussion. We didn't get to get as deep into some of the things we should we should have. But uh, boy, time went faster than we even thought it would. We thought it would go fast and yeah. it really flew by. We're over time right now. Yeah. All right. But we appreciate you being a part of the program tonight. We hope you benefited from our discussion. We encourage you to be back here next week for another edition of the virtual Bible study. And in the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life. Study his inspired word, of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.